truly pleased to have with us um, Ed Trefker from the Evangelical Church of Fairport. I'm going to shamelessly read the, the uh, bio from ECF's uh, website. And you can tell me if I miss anything. But Ed Trefsker, Pastor Ed takes great care and passion in overseeing missions, outreach, and evangelism for ECF. In addition to regular teaching and preaching at ECF, he also fills the pulpit at other area churches. Thank you very much. Ed worked as a mechanical engineer for 14 years at General Motors, starting as a co-op while still an undergrad at RIT, prior to beginning a career in web development as a freelancer. In addition to web development work, Ed also is the CTO of an internet streaming media startup. Heads up Technology for College hockey website at uscho.com and is the publisher of a weekly music um, industry publication, Jazz Week. Ed is also heard on the radio as the play-by-play voice of RIT men's hockey and Pastor Ed blogs at This Mystery. He is also the station manager at WDMY right here in Dansville. In a moment, um, Ed is going to be sharing um, what the Lord has to say in Titus chapter 1. So that will be our, our uh, scripture reading for today. Titus chapter 1. We'll read, we'll read our passage and then we'll ask the Lord to bless his time in, in prayer. So Titus chapter 1, that's on page 998 in your pew Bible. So we'll, we'll be reading uh, Titus chapter 1 and it will be through verse 7. So first of all, folks, if you're wondering why we're doing our, our lesson through Titus, listen to the first four verses. Paul, a servant of God and an apostle of Jesus Christ, for the sake of the faith of God's elect and their knowledge of the truth, which accords with godliness, in hope of eternal life, which God, who never lies, promised before the ages began, and at the proper time manifested in his word through the preaching, which I have been entrusted by the command of God our Savior. To Titus, my true child in a common faith, grace and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Savior. Now today's word. This is why I left you in Crete, so you might put what remained into order and appoint elders in every town as I directed you. If anyone is above reproach, the husband of one wife and his children are believers and not open to the charge of debauchery or insubordination. For an overseer, as God's steward, must be above reproach. He must not be arrogant or quick-tempered or drunkard or violent or greedy for gain. That's the word of the Lord. Oh, good morning. I, I, I haven't heard that bio in a while, and I guess there are maybe a couple of things that we need to update, but that's okay. It's always a pleasure to be here at Grace Baptist. Uh, it always feels like home. Um, I'm talking to some of the folks beforehand. It really is that connection in the body of Christ through the Holy Spirit that connects us all together. And when you come to a church that's uh, filled with believers and filled with the Spirit, it, it really does feel like home. And, and I must say, I'm, I'm so delighted that you've been able to give Pastor Dave this 
sabbatical, I know uh, how much uh, he um, how much he loves this church, how much how hard he works on on your behalf, and for him to be able to have some time to rejuvenate is really a wonderful thing. Um, and it, it really has been a pleasure for me to get to know so many of you over the years, and including Pastor Dave. Well, you know, most churches will have a time when they need to select a pastor or pastors, uh, an elder or elders, and more on those terms in a moment. And because churches do, God has seen fit to give us in his word some guidance on how to select elders or pastors to oversee his church. At our church, uh, ECF, Evangelical Church of Fairport, over the past couple of years, we've had to consider bringing on board a, a new elder to serve first as a full-time associate pastor and then to determine if uh, he was the right man to serve as lead pastor when, uh, when Reed Ferguson retired. Now, while there were a number of things we decided we wanted in a new pastor, our first list of qualifications came directly from Scripture. Uh, including Titus 1, 5 through 9, and also a similar passage in 1 Timothy, and that's 1 Timothy 3, 1 through 7. At the same time, we also added another uh, non-vocational, if you accept that term, non-full-time, non-paid elder to our group of what is now six elders, as we had both Pastor Reed Ferguson and uh, our brother Al Sable, who many of you know, uh, both retiring from being an elder. So right now we have a group of six, and I understand here at Grace Baptist you're also looking to add to your number of elders, and so I hope this sermon series through Titus is going to be really helpful for you here at this church. Now because this sermon and this series is in Titus, I'm going to stick mostly in that, uh, in that book this morning, but at one point I'm also going to take you to 1 Timothy to help out with a little bit of context and maybe flesh out some of the more difficult words and phrases that are in our text today. But first, I think it's, it's good to get clear on some words and definitions. Now, after all, I've already made reference to elder and pastor, and let's include the word overseer in those first few minutes here together. And that brings up the question, who are elders? Are they different from pastors? And what about overseers? Back in February, I had the honor of presenting a paper to the Reformation Society of Western New York at a meeting right here at Grace Baptist Church. Pastor Dave, uh, along with Pastor Matt Bedzik and Elmira, head up the Reformation Society of Western New York. And if you're not familiar with it, it's an opportunity from, for pastors and other uh, church people from around our area, all over southern tier, western New York, Finger Lakes area, to get together once a month uh, and present papers and studies to each other and have a time of fellowship. And those men have also formed really strong bonds, so they have one another to lean upon when there are things that they, they need some advice on. Uh, and the paper that I presented here was about the importance to a church of a plurality of elders, multiple elders in a church, so that you don't have just one pastor trying to shoulder everything all by himself, but that you have a team of elders or pastors who 
together oversee and shepherd the flock. Now, in that paper, one of the things I needed to do was to make some definitions also. And I started out with this very passage from Titus in discussing some of that terminology. So as we begin to unpack this passage, I think it's important that we start out with a clear definition of terms. So if you have your Bibles open still to uh, Titus 1, starting in verse 5, we see the word elders. This is why I left you in Crete, so that you might put what remained into order and appoint elders. And then in verse 7, we see the word overseer, for an overseer as God's steward must be above reproach. The way Paul uses them in this letter to Titus it sounds as if they are synonymous or at least talking about the same people. Now, verse 5, that word elders is translated from the Greek word presbyteros, which means elders in, in Greek. And it's also the word that we get Presbyterian from, a church government that is led by elders. And it's also kind of the same root word as presbyopia, those of you like me with bifocals or who need reading glasses, these are, uh, this is an eye condition that happens when you get older. So that's all kind of from that same Greek word, presbyteros. In verse 7, the word overseer is translated from the Greek word episkopos, from which we get the word bishop and also the word episcopal uh, for a church that is governed by bishops. Episcopal church is like that, Methodist church, uh, Roman Catholic Church, uh, bishops in a, in a hierarchy. But as we see Paul here saying to appoint elders, and when we see him use the phrase for an overseer, as summarizing some of the requirements of elders, we can see he is using them to refer to the same person. Why the use then of two terms? Uh, there's an author named Benjamin Merkel. He wrote a book that's really good, uh, called 40 Questions About Elders and Deacons. And he writes in that, the reason could be explained by the general use of the terms. Elder is more a description of character, whereas overseer is more a description of function. It appears that originally various congregations preferred one term over the other. The Jewish congregations apparently favored the term presbyteros, or elder, while the Gentile congregations favored the term episcopos or, or bishop. Over time, or, or overseer, over time, however, these two terms became to be used in the same congregations and could be used interchangeably since they referred to the leaders of the congregation. It's likely that both terms remain due to the important connotations each one carried. The term presbyteros conveyed the idea of a wise, mature leader who was honored and respected by those of the community, while the term episkopos spoke more to the work of the individual whose duty it was to oversee and protect those under his care. So it's different aspects of the same office in the church, but uh, they refer to the same person. There's also one other word we use often, and that's pastor which we find in Ephesians 4.11, where a word in Greek, poimenos, is rendered pastor or shepherd, depending on the English translation. And because elders and overseers and pastors are both given the task of teaching 
And because there's no separate listing of qualifications between pastors and elders or overseers, they really should not be considered a separate office. Now, there are some traditions where they do that. I'm kind of coming from, you know, in our church, a, a small b Baptist church, if you will, and, and a, also a Baptist polity like or church government like this. So then, for the for the purposes of this, elders are overseers are pastors. They refer to the same office, the same position in the church. So let's, let's dive in a little more into today's passage. Verse 5 starts out, This is why I left you in Crete. And so Paul begins an explanation. He writes, So that you might put what remained in order. Well, what needs to be put in order? Well, the next part of the sentence refers to appointing elders in every town. But it seems like there's a bit more to do than that. I don't want to spend a lot of time digging into what starts in verse 10. You're going to get there in a couple of weeks. But this passage, starting in verse 10, is right after Paul's instructions to Titus about selecting elders. And so it can be read as connected to what Paul is writing right here, the concept of putting things in order with the instructions about elders kind of as an explanation stuck in before, before he gets into saying what his task is. So kind of as a preview of a couple of weeks down the road and to help explain where we are today, I'd like to read from uh, beginning in verse 10, and you can read along with me in your Bibles or the Pew Bibles. We'll read through verse 16. For there are many who are insubordinate, empty talkers and deceivers, especially those of the circumcision party. They must be silenced since they are upsetting whole families by teaching for shameful gain what they ought not to teach. One of the Cretans, a prophet of their own, said, Cretans are always liars, evil beasts, lazy gluttons. This testimony is true. Therefore rebuke them sharply that they may be sound in the faith, not devoting themselves to Jewish myths and the commands of people who turn away from the truth. To the pure, all things are pure, but to the defiled and unbelieving, nothing is pure. Uh, But both their minds and their consciences are defiled. They profess to know God, but they deny him by their works. They are detestable, disobedient, and unfit for any good work. Some of the strongest language Paul uses outside of Galatians, and he's He's referring to some of the same people here when he talks about the circumcision party or Jewish myths. There, there are those people in the early church who are saying that Christians have to become Jewish before they become Christians, uh, those who are Gentiles, that is. And, and so Paul is speaking against that. But you can see that Paul is not really much of a fan of the Cretans. And, and can you imagine today, can you imagine saying... Uh, a group of people are always liars, evil beasts, and lazy gluttons today. Could you get, could you get away with that? I, I don't think so. You'd, you'd get banned from social media at least. But anyhow, it sounds as if there are false teachers and rabble-rousers around Crete who are causing problems, and Paul has left Titus there to clean up the mess. But it also sounds as if Paul is saying to Titus, you need to get some help in this project. Crete... It's a small island, but it's not tiny. It's about 160 miles long, and 
from narrower to wider, seven or so miles wide to 37 miles wide. So it's a pretty good chunk of land. There's a lot of territory there. And even in the town where Titus was based, the capital city under the Roman Empire, it had a population of 300,000 people. That's a lot of people for that time. So there are a sizable number of people to reach, and there's a whole lot of territory to cover. And the terrain there is also very mountainous and rocky. And it's said by historians there weren't a lot of roads connecting the towns. The, the Romans, though they occupied it, hadn't really put their kind of public works project into place. So because of the distance and the difficulty of travel and how treacherous it was, and because of the size of the population, there was a need to establish local churches around Crete and to appoint elders in each location. So then this is, this is Titus's assignment. Appoint elders in every town and with their help combat the false teaching with sound doctrine, as Paul will write later in this letter. So as we continue into verse 6, we come to a couple of verses that have been open to a lot of interpretation. And not just interpretation as a whole passage, but interpretation by way of the translation choices that uh, Bible translators have made over the years for specific words. And when you get into stuff where there's a lot of controversy and, and a, lot of, uh, a lot of detail on language, you kind of have to rely on the experts in this. So I've, I've looked at some of the references on word usage and commentaries and so forth and tried to wring out from those really what's the overall meaning, what's, what's the gist of what Paul's trying to get to with Titus. And, and, it, and i got to say, it's amazing how many different approaches there are. And, and as you read through some of these commentaries, you, you say to yourself, okay, some of these guys have got to be wrong. They can't both be right about this thing. So you have to really kind of sift through it and pray about it. But let's start in verse 6. We see, if anyone is above reproach. And some Bible translations will use the word blameless instead of above reproach. So that brings up a question. Does somebody have to be sinless to be appointed an elder? Well, if it did, no church would have any pastors or elders. Paul certainly knows that all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, so that truly can't be it. It also doesn't mean that the person is going to be universally liked. It may not even mean, as some people might suggest, that the person will be considered as an upstanding person by the general community. Because doesn't Jesus promise us that we will be disliked and persecuted? A man of God standing for the faith may very well be reviled in his own community. There are even people on the island of Crete who have been opposing Paul and Titus. So they would not find themselves to be found blameless in everyone's eyes. The important thing, I think, for us here is to look at it from the aspect of the church. Is this a person who is living in light of the truth of the gospel? Is this someone who knows Christ and has ordered his life accordingly? This isn't the word for without blemish like we see for the spotless Lamb of God. This is without blame or unaccused. So the, the elder candidate must be one who is 
as some translations word it, of unquestioned integrity or of unimpeachable or irreproachable character. As John Stott wrote, paraphrasing the word, they should be marred by no disgrace. They should offer no loophole for criticism. This should be someone whose character is respected and even emulated, someone who has received the gospel and is living in the light of it. And if we have somebody who is going to be in gospel ministry, don't you want somebody in that position who has been touched deeply and felt the impact of the gospel on their lives? Some of those people may be people who have grown up in the church and they, they, they've been taught in it and they come to realize at some point in their youth that they have believed and that their heart has been transformed. Or it may be like many of us here who have gotten into adulthood and uh, maybe wandered off a path that uh, we regret now, but know deeply the impact of the gospel and how the Holy Spirit has transformed our hearts when we first believed and understood that Christ went to the cross on our behalf so that we could be eventually seen as spotless and blameless, seen that way now by God and transformed that way when we see him like he is. Someone who has received the gospel and living in the light of it. Now as we get into the next part of verse 6, we enter a part of the text that has been even more widely debated. And I want to caution us here not to get caught in the weeds or to miss the forest for the trees when we get into this. I think it's important here to see the overall message Paul is communicating in verse 6 and not get hung up on trying to dissect each word as if he's spelling out some specific checklist of rules by the use of a word or phrase. Because if he was being very specific about these things, he had the opportunity, and God through the inspiration of the Spirit had the opportunity to make some very specific things called out there. We're also going to cross-reference a bit into 1 Timothy 3. So before we get into this part of chapter 6, or verse 6 rather, I'd like to look at what's a, a parallel passage to this so that it's fresh in our minds. So 1 Timothy, 1 Timothy 3, if you want to turn back there, it's just after what we heard uh, for our reading this morning. We're going to read verses 2 through 5. And Paul is writing to Timothy, Therefore an overseer must be above reproach, the husband of one wife, sober-minded, self-controlled, respectable, hospitable, able to teach, not a drunkard, not violent, but gentle, not quarrelsome, nor a lover of money. He must manage his own household well, with all dignity, keeping his children submissive. For if someone does not know how to manage his own household, how will he care for God's church? So let's flip back to our, our passage for today and keep some of those phrases in mind. Verse 6 of Titus 1, If anyone is above reproach, the husband of one wife, and his children are believers and not open to the charge of debauchery or insubordination. Both of those passages in 1 Timothy and here in Titus use the phrase, a husband of one wife and include as a footnote in the alternate translation, a man of one woman, or quite literally as it's, it's written in the original language, a one-woman man. Theologians have various views on what Paul was getting at here, mainly because the words one-woman man 
can also be translated as a one-wife husband. The one thing I do want to make clear here, and I don't think we have a lot of controversy over that in our midst, is that Paul is saying an elder must be a man. He doesn't give the option. And I think as those who are part of a church that is complementarian, meaning that it's a church that sees different roles for men and women, even though we have equality in our unity in Christ Jesus, that this isn't a big area for us for debate. Now, within the broader scope of the church and in various denominations and traditions, there are some different views on that, but I'm, I'm going to be content right here for us to leave it as uh, the definition of an elder being a man. So, continuing on with this, this phrase or this concept, a one-woman man. Some have suggested that Paul is saying an elder must be a married man. This does seem somewhat unlikely because Paul himself at this time is single, whether he is uh, a widower, as some have speculated, uh, or whether he was never married, and we'll have the opportunity to ask him when we see him in glory. I always have this idea that some of these people like Paul are going to have this long line of people waiting to ask them some questions. Um, but anyway, we can continue on with one woman man. Um, Paul also even speaks positively of singleness for those who find themselves in that position for a season or per, for perhaps a lifetime. As he writes in 1 Corinthians 7-8, to the unmarried and the widows I say that it is good for them to remain single as I am. Now, from this passage, from this phrase, some also suggest that this means a divorced man cannot be an elder. Now, again, I, I don't want to draw a uh, complete uh, wide interpretation or uh, cut and dried on this, but I think there's some reasons why we would caution against this. First, in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus, while narrowing the scope of divorce in in, in his uh, sermon also provides conditions in which it would be considered acceptable. But probably more immediate to this situation, I think, is what Paul has not said. Paul has not said he must not have been divorced. Uh, and we would have to kind of read that into the phrase for it to apply here. Other people suggest that what Paul is writing about here is polygamy. More than one wife is what he's prohibiting. But Polygamy is not thought to have been practiced in the time and place where Titus is ministered. It again could have been specified, but as one commentator quipped, it would have been as out of place there as saying a man must not be a cannibal. So it, it doesn't really fit the situation. But what's essential here is that the individual man's conduct in matters, what his conduct is in matters of relationships, that he be a faithful husband if married and then he not be in improper relationships if he is not. And I think we can bolster this understanding more as we look further into verse 6 and also this parallel passage. So, as one who is above reproach, his relationship with a wife must be biblical. If he's married, he must be married to one wife and faithful to her. And if he is not married, he must not engage in what is reserved for the marriage relationship between a husband and a wife. 
Now we come to another part of verse 6 that has been interpreted in different ways too. And his children are believers and not open to the charge of debauchery or insubordination. Just take that first part, and his children are believers. And I'll insert here, this doesn't require that a man have children to be an elder, especially if we established he doesn't need to be married. But as that is, as his children are believers, this is another place where a phrase can be translated in different ways. The word for believers here comes from the Greek word for faithful. And some translations use that word, faithful. For example, the New King James Bible says, having faithful children not accused of dissipation or insubordination. And even how people understand the word children is up for some interpretation here too. The Greek word for children can either mean, just like in English, either simply offspring, or can more usually, just like in English, more usually means sons or daughters who are not yet adults. Now if we take the broadest definition, and and some people will do this, then this means, this would have to mean that an elder's children of whatever age must be believers, and if we define believers as those who have been regenerated by the Holy Spirit to have saving belief in Christ, then we find ourselves in a bit of a quandary, right? If all children must be believers. Our, our new lead pastor at ECF, Jim Lucky, who I hope you'll have a chance to meet, and I know some of you have, Jim and his wife Dana have two sons. The older son is three, and the younger one just turned one a couple of months ago. Should he, by this logic, be disqualified because his children have not yet come to faith in Christ? That seems a bit unrealistic. Likewise, can a man be held to the spiritual state of his adult children? One of John Piper's sons has renounced the faith and is even creating some really mean-spirited videos online uh, promoting his atheism and ridiculing Christianity. And many know the story of Francis Schaeffer's son, Frankie, who rejected what he once seemed to believe. And I think we can point to and we know of situations where siblings, brothers and sisters, have been brought up and taught in the same home, yet some will believe and some come to faith and others will not. And also, given what we know about God's sovereign hand in salvation, can we reject a man from eldership for something he can no longer control when his adult child, his adult offspring, is no longer walking with the faith? We can remember Proverbs 22, verse 6, train up a child in the way he should go. Even when he is old, he will not depart from it. That's not a guarantee. That's not a guarantee. That's a prescription. That's instruction on how to raise someone up. But it's not a guarantee that if you do that, that child will be faithful. You're giving them the very best chance and uh, we, we pray through God's sovereignty that he would bring the child to faith. But really what is, what is going on here is the child well-behaved and under the authority of the man and not open to the charge of debauchery or insubordination. It's the child well-behaved showing that that man's household is under control. And that's the overall thrust here of verse 6. Does a man have a home? Does he have a household that reflects a home 
a man who cares for God's people should have. Is this a man who is caring for his home in the way we would look for him to care for the church? 1 Timothy helps us here in 1 Timothy 3.5, for if someone does not know how to manage his own household, how will he care for God's church? Similarly here in verse 7, for an overseer as God's steward, the word steward there, or, uh, or you could per- paraphrase that as one who cares for God's house. It points to the elder or overseer acting in God's stead to take care of his people, the church. So that's what's in view here through this. Not, not very precise little qualifications that we can read out of one word to build a checklist, but instead, does the prospective elder have a healthy view of marriage and family? If he has a wife, is he faithful to her? If he is unmarried, does he respect what being unmarried calls for? If he has children, do they behave and respect him? Does he demonstrate care for the family? And if he can't, how can he care for the household of God? I'll just throw in there even the word children. Some people have gotten so specific on that as to say that if a man has only one child, that means he can't be an elder. You see where getting into some of that can become legalistic and totally miss the forest for the trees, as I said. But caring for the household of God. As an under-shepherd of the great shepherd is God's steward, an elder's care for his wife and family should picture that of Jesus' care for our church. Uh, I'll read from Ephesians 5 this reminder. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself, for no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes it and cherishes it, just as Christ does the church, because we are members of his body. An elder must demonstrate that he can care for and love the flock God has given him to shepherd. Now, Paul goes on to list five characteristics that an overseer, that an elder, must not have. You might consider these to be sort of no-brainers. It's pretty obvious. But it is worth seeing how important they are and how they might be red flags as you look to appoint potential elders or even as you evaluate those who may be serving in that office. In verse 7, For an overseer is God's steward must be above reproach. He must not be arrogant or quick-tempered, or a drunkard, or violent, or greedy for gain. Let's start with he must not be arrogant or quick-tempered. These kind of fit together. A tendency, a tendency to be overbearing or really quick to anger are not good qualities for being part of a team or caring for a church body. That sort of individual can kind of force his will on a body if he's in leadership, or maybe through force of personality, rally people to himself, and that can create disunity within the church. Paul will later point out that arguments and quarrels were a trait of the false teachers there in Crete. In chapter 3, verse 9, he says, But avoid foolish controversies, genealogies, dissensions, and quarrels about the law, for they're unprofitable and worthless. 
if an elder is to love the church in a way modeled by Christ, then arrogance is counter to that. You, you will probably have brought to mind from 1 Corinthians 13 that love is patient and kind. Love does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. So a man who is arrogant and quick to anger, and how often has God described as slow to anger? If we want to emulate him, right? A man who is arrogant and quick to anger is not showing love and is not suited to love God's church as an elder or pastor or overseer or under-shepherd. Paul writes, or a drunkard. I'm not going to get specifically into the issue of alcohol abuse, but we do know, or alcohol use, but we do know that where everyone falls on this issue, drunkenness is not an appropriate trait for an elder. Abuse of alcohol leads to self, uh, a lack of self-control. And while there are Old Testament passages describing wine as a blessing, there are a whole lot more of them there warning of its misuse. And as Paul writes in Ephesians 5:18, do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit. An elder must not be violent. The only other place this word violent appears in the Bible is 1 Timothy 3:3, saying just about the same thing. Aren't we called to be the opposite? Aren't we called to be peacemakers? At our church, we're in the midst of a series through Matthew and we recently studied through the Beatitudes in that. And I know you'll be spending a couple of Sundays, Lord willing, in September uh, in the Beatitudes. And Jesus tells us, Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. And Paul wished Titus peace, as he so often does in his epistles, as we heard in verse 4. To Titus, my true child in a common faith, grace and peace from God the Father, and Christ Jesus our Savior. I don't think you can, I know I can't, conceive of a situation where it would be appropriate for an elder to be violent. I even get a little squeamish when I, when I see about some who participate in things like mixed martial arts. Now, it's not a biblical mandate, that's just kind of my opinion there, but it, it just seems the opposite of what we're looking for. And, Paul even expressed the polar opposite of a violent nature when he wrote on behalf of him and Silas and Timothy to the church at Thessalonica. But we were gentle among you, like a nursing mother taking care of her own children. That's a very different picture than violent. An elder must not be violent. And Paul goes on, and he must not be greedy for gain, or as sometimes the other translations might say, dishonest gain. The Cretans, among all the other nasty characteristics that Paul described there, also had this reputation for being very greedy. Uh, in his commentary on the letters to Timothy and Titus, uh, the theologian Robert W. Yarborough quotes second century church father Polybius as he describes the Cretans and how they were noted for greed. He says, uh, their laws go as far as possible in letting them acquire land to the extent of their power, as the saying is, and money is held in such high honor among them that its acquisition is not only regarded as necessary, 
but is most honorable. So much, in fact, do sordid love of gain and lust for wealth prevail among them that the Cretans are the only people in the world in whose eyes no gain is disgraceful. The Cretans, on the other hand, owing to their ingrained lust of wealth, are involved in constant broils, both public and private, and in murders and in civil wars. So that this was really part of their culture. And finding somebody who didn't have that greed must have been a bit of a challenge. And we don't really have to think very long for modern examples of those who were in so-called ministry for greed. You know, you have televangelists espousing the so-called uh, prosperity gospel and they're financing mansions and jets and limousines on the backs of people who are impoverished and destitute. And even pastors who don't start out seeking monetary gain can, gain can become susceptible to it when a church grows large and then has lots of resources. That can become a snare to a man too. When you have a lot of money coming in the coffers through the collection plate as the church gets large or as you build staffs and have big buildings. We've seen men get caught up in that and fall. Now I'm not saying that, that a pastor, that an elder should not be paid verses on that are familiar. First uh, Timothy 5, let the elders who rule well be considered worthy of double honor, especially those who labor in preaching and teaching. For the scripture says you shall not muzzle an ox when it treads out the grain and the laborer deserves his wages. Uh, we want to be generous to someone who, who labors full time on our behalf and overlooks our souls and prepares teaching and, and sermons for us. Um, and I know this church has shown, shown great generosity in giving Pastor Dave this time off. Now, that's a wonderful thing and, and churches should do that. But even though those people should be paid, Paul also admonishes uh, people. He, he says, as we might say, he knows how to make do. Philippians 4.12, I know how to be brought low and I know how to abound. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. So even as we as a church should adequately and generously compensate a full-time elder who leads our church, that elder also must learn to be content. An elder must not be greedy for gain. So an elder must not be arrogant or quick-tempered or a drunkard or violent or greedy for gain. And next Sunday, Lord willing, you'll hear some of the positive aspects uh, con uh, considering the aspects, that, the traits that a man must have to be an elder. So to sum this up, what Paul is telling Titus here in these three verses, God, God cares deeply for his church. He gave Jesus Christ for her. The Lord wants his church cared for by those who are qualified to do so and who are caring for her in the same way our great shepherd cares for her, the way Jesus cares for his body, the church. An elder is an overseer, is a pastor. He's an under-shepherd to the great shepherd who gave his life for the sheep. That elder must show his qualifications by loving his wife and family in a way that shows that he can love Christ's church. 
He must not be arrogant or quick-tempered because that's unloving. The elder must not be a drunkard, but exhibit self-control and be guided by the Holy Spirit. He must not be violent, but care for the church like a mother does her infant. He must not be greedy, but live in contentment and live with a generous heart. And an elder must seek to love his brothers and sisters in the body of Christ in the way that the Lord Jesus loves them.